It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Let's just come out and say it. The Tokyo Olympics has been a debacle. I mean, so many friggin' things have gone wrong. And the Olympics starts tomorrow. Uh, you know, you have obviously the effects of COVID. It was canceled from last year. Then the COVID got worse. So though no spectators, no fans, then certain athletes uh, developing COVID and having to be sent home. Then there were athletes who went there, thought they'd qualified, but they hadn't qualified. And they were sent home. I mean, just one. And here's the latest. You know, they have the opening ceremonies tomorrow. Usually it's a big ratings winner. Well, they just fired the guy who was in charge of the opening ceremonies. His name is Kentaro Kobayashi. He was the director. He's been dismissed. Why? He was accused, and this is like 20 years ago, of using a joke about the Holocaust in his comedy act, including the phrase, hey, let's play Holocaust. Where do they find these people? Do they have, understand anything about vetting? Do they have the Google what? Why hire this guy? So this is abject apology of a statement. We deeply apologize for causing such a development the day before the opening ceremony and for causing troubles and concerns to many involved parties as well as the people of Tokyo and the rest of the country. You can just imagine the guy bowing as he delivers these remarks. Jeez. Um, all right. As long as we're doing a little bit of sports here, I talked on the podcast a little bit ago about the incredible and regrettable dust-up at ESPN where African-American host Maria Taylor was really angry at uh, Rachel Nichols, a white colleague. They both do a lot with basketball. Basketball is kind of Rachel Nichols' beat. She was taken off the NBA Finals because of a leak to the New York Times of some videotaped comments that she made without realizing uh, they were being videotaped. Uh, saying that she was ticked off, that she was losing out a plum basketball assignment to Maria Taylor. It wasn't that she criticized Maria Taylor, but said, look, this is all ESPN trying to do the diversity thing. They want to give her more stuff, fine, but it shouldn't be at my expense. And she apologized, and she apologized, and Rachel Nichols went on the air and apologized. Maria Taylor wouldn't talk to her. She's ticked. Well, uh, now that the NBA Finals are over, Maria Taylor is leaving ESPN. Definitely nobody's surprised. By the way, the network offered her a $3 million contract, but her feelings were hurt. She's leaving. I'm sure that, you know, she'll get another good offer somewhere else. But it seems to me that, you know, if anybody ought to really be pissed off, it's Rachel Nichols. Maria Taylor got what she wanted. And plus, you know, you know what? You know what? If you offer me $3 million a year, I don't really care if anybody else wants to feud with me. I think that's a pretty generous sum of money for somebody in the media. Uh, by the way, NPR ran a, a, a story about this with a photo of another black woman who works at ESPN, who then tweeted something like, no, we don't all look alike. What a dumb mistake. I mean, you know, anytime there's something like this, it takes another 10 seconds to check and make sure it's actually the right person. It just looks horrible. By the way, Eric Clapton uh, announcing, I believe yesterday, that he will cancel any concerts on his upcoming tour if the venue uh, tries to exclude unvaccinated people. So I get that Clapton wants to be able to play to all fans who want to buy tickets to his performances. Uh, but, you know, businesses have a right to do that. And maybe more vaccinated people feel comfortable. This is a decision every business is going to have to make. Going to an event, a concert, anything where you got a whole bunch of people in a, you know, 
fairly tight space, knowing that the other people who are there have gotten the shots. We'll come back to COVID later in the podcast. So let's start right now with story number one. Huge blow up, poisonous relations on Capitol Hill between Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy over the January 6th committee. Now, you'll recall there was a big fight about this some weeks ago when the House Speaker made a push to create an independent 9-11 style commission that would have both Democrats and Republicans. Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, didn't want that. He fought against it and basically derailed that plan. That would have been, uh, despite whatever McCarthy's feelings were about it, at least it would have had uh, a pretty strong veneer of bipartisanship. So instead, since she couldn't get the commission, Pelosi decided, well, we'll investigate it with a select committee of the House. And she named uh, her Democratic members, and there was a huge blow up then because one of the people she named, she named, she named, I think it was like seven Democrats, and then Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, Republican, accepted an offer from Nancy Pelosi to be on this committee, despite the fact that Kevin McCarthy had asked all of his Republican members not to uh, go along as, as a Pelosi pick and threatened to strip them of their committee assignments that they did so, but obviously he didn't do that to Liz Cheney. So now... Uh, what happened next is there was a little kind of this mini drama. Was McCarthy going to name members or just walk away from the thing? Finally, he names five members. And I must say, this was, you hesitate in journalism to use the word unprecedented, but it's pretty freaking rare. Pelosi took the five members and said, I'm not taking two of them, okay? No dice, Kevin. You can't put Jim Jordan on the committee. And you can't put uh, this other Republican congressman, Jim Banks, because they don't believe in the mission. They were doing everything they can to undermine it. And of course, McCarthy wasn't going to stand for that. So he's pulling all his members. You're not going to let me pick my own members? I'm out of here. Now, i got a lot of things to say about this. Although, you know, the pundits are obviously breaking down along party lines. I think this was an overreach by Pelosi. She had to know if she knocked off two of McCarthy's five picks that he would probably take his marbles, and go home. And what does that leave her with? It leaves her with an all-Democratic committee, except for Liz Cheney, who uh, also had some harsh words from McCarthy. Cheney actually agreed with Pelosi in knocking these two members off. She's had some really bad blood with Jim Jordan. In fact, from one of the new books, there's a scene on the House floor from January 6th where she basically says, you're the effing reason that this happened. So she didn't particularly want to serve with Jim Jordan either. But I don't see what this gets Pelosi because she had two choices. Let's put it that way. She could have had a a committee with Democrats and Republicans, including a couple of Republican members who were going to probably try to undermine this thing at every turn, discredit it, and certainly try to keep it away from investigating the role of Donald Trump, which now will obviously happen. But the door number two is a committee that for all intents and purposes is an all-democratic committee, that whatever its findings, however, you know, it's going to have hearings next week with some Capitol Police officers, however careful its investigation, whenever they turn up, it will be very easy for the GOP and for conservative media to say, well, this thing's a partisan joke because it's basically only Democrats and Liz, who's a rhino, and so forth and so on. So 
I'm not quite sure I fully understand why Pelosi was doing it. What she said is, the unprecedented nature of January 6th demands this unprecedented decision. She's saying, I wouldn't ordinarily do this, uh, but I didn't really have any choice because this is so important. So then McCarthy comes out to the TV cameras on the Hill. You can see he's really agitated. And he completely denounces Pelosi. And then he tries to flip it to put the burden on Pelosi. Why was the Capitol so ill-prepared for that day when they knew on December 14th that they had a problem? And also said, Pelosi has created a sham process. A reporter asked him, well, why didn't you go along with the bipartisan commission? Because I always knew Nancy Pelosi was going to play politics with him. Now, I guess it's fair to ask whether Nancy Pelosi could have done more to beef up security at the Capitol, but the truth is that neither leader uh, in either house controls, they appoint the people who run the Capitol Police and so on, but they don't control the security. So there probably isn't, you know, it's been well investigated that, you know, the Pentagon was asked for help, they wanted the National Guard, the Capitol Police didn't talk to the right people, the FBI didn't tell the Capitol Police, whatever. It was a debacle. This could have been avoided. That's a fair line of inquiry, but obviously it's a bit of partisanship on McCarthy's part to lay this at the feet of the House Speaker. Uh, here's uh, Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, quoted by the New York Times. There are people who want to derail and thwart an investigation, and there are people who want to conduct an investigation. That's the fault line here. And Liz Cheney says, the rhetoric that we have heard from the minority leader is disingenuous. At every opportunity, the minority leader has attempted to prevent the American people from understanding what happened to block this investigation. Now, let me just provide a little bit of historical context here. When you had the endless um, Benghazi committee investigations and hearings, when the Republicans controlled the House, when Barack Obama was president, when Hillary Clinton was the former Secretary of State, the Democrats on those Benghazi committees, of course, they tried to do everything they could to discredit the investigation, to derail the investigation, to protect the Obama administration and Hillary Clinton, who, of course, was gearing up for her second run for president, everything they could. That's the way the Hill works. It doesn't mean you don't have members of the other party, the minority party, on your committee. So for Nancy Pelosi to say, I'm just shocked and horrified. I mean, McCarthy didn't put Marjorie Taylor Greene on the committee. He put Jim Jordan, who's, you know, on other committees, who is a very aggressive, fiery Republican. That's why he was picked. So... If it's good enough for the Democrats, when it's in their interest, to try to undermine a committee investigation that targets Democrats, and there's no question there's a political benefit here for the Dems to try to spotlight Donald Trump's role leading up to the awful events of January 6th, and there's no question uh, the Republicans are playing defense here, not wanting to give this a whole new round of publicity throughout this year heading into uh, next year's midterm elections. But that's the way the process works. So, you know, in a nutshell, everybody looks bad. Everybody looks partisan. Maybe if that's the case, it's better for the Republicans because they're not even going to participate. But they did agree to participate. And Nancy Pelosi basically said, I'd rather not have you if you're going to put people I don't like on this committee when that's the case all the time. So I think, as I said at the top, I think it's a bit of an overreach. All right, number two. The COVID situation is getting worse and worse, and the dilemma for the Biden administration is getting worse and worse. If you listen to this podcast every day, you'll know I talked about, well, 
the uh, number of new COVID cases in this country has gone up to 20,000 a day. Again, nothing near the pandemic peak of 200 plus thousand. Then 25, then 30. Well, yesterday, more than 41,000 new cases of coronavirus, an increase of 171% just over the previous two weeks. If you look at the, a longer period of that than that, it's tripled over the past roughly three weeks. Now, it is true that because roughly half the country has been vaccinated, that a lot of these cases turn out to be mild. People don't have to go to the hospital, and that's obviously a good thing. So you don't have the fear factor, I think, that you did. But on the other hand, particularly in some of these states in the South and Upper Midwest, where the vaccination rates are really low, you do have unvaccinated people uh, now facing this Delta variant, which is 83% of what's at, been unleashed in the United States. And it's pretty concerning. So President Biden at a CNN town hall last night, I'll get to more of that in mere moments, um, had this to say about Fox. He tells Don Lemon, one of those other networks is not a big fan of mine, one you talk about a lot. But if you notice, as they say in the southern part of my state, they've had an altar call. Some of these guys, all of a sudden, they're out there saying, let's get vaccinated, let's get vaccinated. Uh, and then the president says, I shouldn't make fun of it. That's good. That's good. It's good. We just have to keep telling the truth. Well, I have a couple of bones to pick there. I mean, I'm glad he recognizes that there are voices. up. I mean, he acts like this suddenly, like this week, Fox decided, okay, we're now going to get behind the vaccine. When people like Steve Ducey and Sean Hannity, to take two conservative hosts who, who spoke out forcefully this week, have said this before. And there's a new PSA out from Fox with John Roberts and Harris Faulkner, and this is the second one from the network. So he's falling into the trap when he says, one of those other networks is not a big fan of mine, of conflating, for example, the primetime opinion hosts, who are not big fans of President Biden, and the news division, which tries to cover him fairly. You can make up your own mind about that, but, you know, there's a lot of reporters and anchors and producers at Fox who have a news division that tries to be fair to the president. Uh, and this is what Barack Obama did. He used to say, oh, you know, if I will listen to Fox News, I wouldn't like me either. Uh, and at that time, he was, you know, railing against Bill O'Reilly and other people who were on Fox at that time. Uh, but it is true. Fox is certainly getting more attention now for people saying, let's get vaccinated. Um, and um, we need to keep talking about this. We absolutely need to keep talking about this. So what's the White House going to do? Washington Post story, top White House aides and Biden administration officials are debating whether they should urge vaccinated Americans to wear masks in more settings as the Delta variant causes a spike in infections, according to six sources. The talks are in a preliminary phase. The result could be as simple as just new messaging from top White House officials, but some of the talks include officials at the CDC who are separately examining whether to update their masking guidance. Ah, here we go again. Officials caution that any new formal guidance would have to come from the CDC. They said the White House is taking a hands-off approach, but look, the president does appoint the head of the CDC, obviously. They want to ensure they're not interfering with the work of scientists. But the CDC has blown a lot of this. I mean, long after it was obvious that nobody needed to wear a mask outdoors, the CDC's official guidance that finally backed off was, no, you got to wear a mask outdoors, even if you've had the shot. And it was widely flouted because outdoors is just a different situation. 
Okay, so one idea being batted around, according to this Post story, ask all Americans to wear masks when vaccinated and unvaccinated people mix at public places or indoors, such as malls, movie theaters, and so on. So far, the White House has been hesitant about any policy that would explicitly require Americans to show proof of their vaccinated status. But nevertheless, there are local governments that are doing that, and there are businesses that are doing that. So look at this this, this comparison. Early June, 11,000 cases. Yesterday, over 40,000 cases. If you're not worried about that, you should be. But I think it would be a real mistake to go back to masks as part of the message. Look, if they want to say, if you're going to a store that requires it or a concert that requires it or a shopping mall that requires it, fine. I think actually for vaccinated people like me, you know, it's almost like a courtesy to wear the mask. Not so much to protect us, but to protect unvaccinated people. Should they get vaccinated? Yes, of course, I wish that they would. But the reality is tens of millions of Americans, maybe they'll get more worried now, I don't know. But the problem is you have to offer a carrot to get vaccinated. And it's, it's hit a wall and it's now about a half a million a day. And it's just at such a snail's pace given that we have these life-saving vaccines available. And part of the reward should be you don't have to wear masks anymore. If it's kind of like, yeah, you don't have to wear masks, but sometimes you do have to wear masks. And if you're with these other people and you're in these certain settings, you have to wear masks. People are not going to feel incentivized to get the shot if they haven't gotten it so far. And it's going to be confusing. Now, it's different for school kids. Biden said yesterday at this town hall, the CDC is going to say that what we should do is everyone under the age of 12 should probably be wearing a mask in school. That's probably what's going to happen. It's a whole different situation because right now you can't get vaccinated if you're under 12. I think you should be able to. I also think parents are going to have more hesitation about that. And that's understandable. Younger kids, it's a tricky situation. On the other hand, if you're going to require them to be in school all day wearing masks, I mean, it's not only uncomfortable, but... It's just difficult for so many hours. I mean, right now you can't get on a plane without a mask. I don't have a problem with that. I didn't like it when I got on a plane, but I didn't have a problem with it. So basically, the administration is trying to figure out what the hell to do. And it's just not clear. And it could be really, really difficult to communicate and muddle the whole message. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. All these headlines again. Washington Post, GOP senators block debate on infrastructure bill, but deal could solidify soon. Politico, infrastructure vote fails as senators try to salvage bipartisan deal. The media just never give up on this. These two sides hate each other. I don't think they're going to do a deal. Maybe they will. I've saved you all a lot of time by not talking about it yesterday. Chuck Schumer put this on the floor as a test vote. GOP blocked it. Couldn't even get the test vote. The vote amounted to a setback to a key priority of President Joe Biden's, says Politico. Members of both parties expect at least one more try in the coming days. There's always one more try. Uh, some Republicans saying they voted against it because they thought Schumer was trying to jam them. Uh, they still think it's possible to have a deal. But, you know, here's another reason why there may not be a deal. How do you pay for even the modified limited hangout spending, the $1 trillion? The Republicans don't want to raise taxes on wealthier people. They don't want to raise taxes on corporations. And now they don't want to give money to the IRS to better enforce the tax laws, which is just a fig leaf anyway, because nobody knows how much money they would produce. So they don't know how to pay for it. 
I still think this thing is going down. Democrats are now planning on, you know, pushing through an even larger one-sided Democrats-only reconciliation bill. And there you have it. The Atlantic has a kind of a good analysis on this, saying, you know, it was only a few weeks ago when Biden came out in front of the White House with a bunch of senators and said, we have a deal. Except they didn't have a deal. They had a three-page sketch of how to spend $1.2 billion on roads, bridges, rail, and broadband, and options of how to pay for it. The devil is always in the details, especially here inside the Beltway. And so without that deal, you got nothing. So now uh, Republicans made their own bet in striking the deal, according to The Atlantic. They thought that by agreeing to a limited amount of new spending on projects that would benefit their constituents, everyone loves roads and bridges, they could appease moderate Dems like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, peeling them away from Biden's more ambitious spending plans. Well, that isn't working either. So basically none of this is working. As much as Biden would love Republican votes, from the infrastructure plan, he wants the roads and bridges even more, which is the Atlantic way of saying the Dems are going to go for this, you know, three and a half trillion dollar deal that is far more than infrastructure. And it's their last shot at spending a lot of money. And Schumer says he wants this done before the Senate leaves for its August recess. And that's the problem with these endless negotiations. This was the problem for the Obama people in 2009. It goes on and on and on. They run out of momentum. Uh, the president loses political capital. And all of a sudden it's August and everybody's going home and they got nothing. So the Democrats don't want to suffer that fate, but they could be heading down that road. Number four, uh, I've talked a lot about the various books uh, on Donald Trump. One of them is getting a lot of attention. It's got a lot of stuff in it that I've already talked about. Is this book, I Alone Can Fix It, by Carol Lenig and Phil Rucker of the Washington Post. And they had like a two and a half hour interview with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And one of the things I heard them say on MSNBC was that the interview was like in the lobby of the Mar-a-Lago resort. So all these people are coming in and out, uh, coming over, saying hi to Trump. Laura Ingram came through and others. I had that situation once. We interviewed the president, the presidential candidate during the campaign. Um, and it was at Trump Tower. But he, we did it at Trump's direction in a lobby area that was near a restaurant, one of the Trump Tower restaurants. And so you had a lot of onlookers. It was just kind of weird. I mean, people, it was kind of roped off so no one came. Afterwards, everybody mobbed him and nobody came while I was interviewing Donald Trump. But he likes to do that and it makes him feel good. Anyway, now they're playing some of the audio from their interview. It's on the record. They're perfectly free to do this. And MSNBC is going crazy over this, leading with it every hour. Trump, Trump talked about uh, January 6th. He said it was a loving crowd, mostly. There was hugging and kissing there. Uh, and then they were ushered in by police. Well, it's true that the Capitol Police uh, removed some of those barriers because they were getting overwhelmed by this mob. They weren't ushered in. That wasn't the plan. Um, maybe there were some people who were hugging and kissing. A lot of other people doing horrible things, attacking police officers, using flagpoles as weapons, um, bringing out a noose for Mike Pence, smashing windows, it's just so interesting the way Donald Trump looks at it that here's what he says. Personally, what I wanted is what they wanted. They showed up to just show support because I happen to believe the election was rigged at a level like nothing has ever been rigged before. He also once again showed his disappointment in Mike Pence. He told Mike Pence he should uphold the Constitution, which of course not how Mike Pence and most of the rest of the world sees it. Um, 
he said Thomas Jefferson had once done something like this. He said, you can be Thomas Jefferson or you can be Mike Pence. And of course, he said he's not locked into having Pence as his running mate if he runs in 2024. Of course, I very much doubt that would happen. All right, number five. Uh, let me just start with this. The polling site 538 says few Americans have changed their minds since the 2020 election. Joe Biden's approval rating in his first six months in office is the steadiest of any such rating of any recent president. Uh, according to 538, his approval rating has uh, ranged from a high of 55% to a low of 51%. In this polarized world, that's pretty good. And it's just been very steady. Why? Because he has overwhelming support by Democrats and almost no support from Republicans. It's been as high as 20 among Republicans. It's also been as low as 10% for President Biden. Now, this uh, CNN town hall with Don Lemon. Look, Don Lemon's probably the most liberal voice on CNN. I mean, he asked Biden some legitimate questions, but did he interrogate him? Did he hammer him? No. He asked, oh, what is it like? Take us behind the scenes to be at the White House. And Biden talked about how he likes to make his own breakfast and how, unlike when he was at the vice president's residence, when he could walk out on shorts because it's surrounded by a huge... Uh, there's just huge grounds there, the formal Naval Observatory, and so he didn't feel as, as cooped up. And Biden talked about how when the first time that he came into a room and they played hail to the chief, he kind of looked around, who's that for? It was all very lovey-dovey, at least during those sections. So what news did he make? President Biden said he supports bringing back the talking filibuster. He's said that before. Uh, the town hall was in Cincinnati. He wouldn't come out for abolishing the filibuster, which, of course, liberals really want so they can get voting rights and other things that they can't get otherwise. Uh, I've been saying for a long time, says Biden, the abuse of the filibuster is pretty overwhelming. There's no reason protected other than, and here's the key, former senator, 36 years, you're going to throw the entire Congress into chaos and nothing will get done. And I suspect Biden might be right about that. You would have absolute warfare and no bill would be able to pass with any Republican support whatsoever. Uh, on voting rights, I want to make sure we bring along not just all the Democrats, we bring along Republicans who I know know better. What I'm trying to do is bring this country together. I don't want the debate to be only about whether or not we have a filibuster or exceptions to the filibuster or going back to the way the filibuster had to be used before. In other words, he doesn't want to just talk process. He wants to talk about infrastructure and voting rights and police reform uh, and the substance of what he wants to do for the country and avoid the process trap, which is fascinating to everybody here inside the Beltway and nobody else out there really cares. They just want to know what the results are. National Review has a piece about town halls, says it's a hideous spectacle, unbecoming of a self-governing republic, has only grown worse. Um, CNN, the way CNN did it last night, Anchor Don Lemon serving as, quote, moderator with the help of a Marcus sheen inculcated by the format. Biden largely skated through a kind of cliff notes of current events by invoking either his preferred cliche or talking point of the moment and a variety of emotional or ironic rhetorical devices as he saw fit, trying to channel the national mood. Uh, this piece ends by saying, if CNN had any shame or respect for the citizens of a self-governing republic, the network would never air one of these idiotic events again. But don't expect that to happen anytime soon. Okay, I think that's a little harsh on CNN. I will say that the CNN town halls tend not to be very tough on Democratic presidents. And to the extent that 
Donald Trump did any of them before he basically stopped doing CNN. Uh, and we saw this with the others, you know, much tougher on President Trump. But if there's a problem with the format, it's not CNN. I mean, Fox News has done town halls. Uh, MSNBC has done town halls. And the broadcast networks have done town halls. And there's a plus and a minus to the town hall format, which is a mixture of questions from the moderator or moderators and average people, ordinary people. And then you get into the question of, well, how were they pre-selected? And are there more Democrats for a Democratic candidate? Are there more Republicans? Do they have balance? What kind of questions do they ask? But I will say this. Journalists tend to look down on town hall format because we think, in our infinite wisdom, that we ask the best, most penetrating questions, that we are uh, so much better informed about the issues, that we have the ability to follow up when... Um, a candidate, a president, whoever it is, tries to skate, tries to slide by, tries not to answer the question. And that's true. And that's why you need aggressive moderation at these things. But there is some value in having questions from ordinary people, even though a lot of the questions are like, what would you do to protect my health care? And just, you know, wide open, not trying to pin down the president or the candidate at all. They do ask about things that give you a sense of what average people care about. And it's usually not beltway process stuff. And also, there is some value in seeing if a president can connect with an audience in Cincinnati or other cities like that. You get out of Washington. Um, Biden is very good at it because he shows a lot of empathy. Bill Clinton was also very good at it. George W. Bush was not so good at it. Um, George H.W. Bush, I meant to say, because famously he looked at his watch during the 1992 uh, town hall debate. Um, so it's a mixed bag, but, you know, this is about the public, what the public cares about. And as long as moderators can follow up, it's not the worst thing in the world to hear from, you know, a nurse who works in an emergency room talking about COVID or a teacher worried about her students or people who have actual jobs from actual other walks of life who are not just wise guy pundits. And whether CNN did a particularly good job or not, I mean, look, when, when Don Lemon was picked, you knew this was not going to be an interrogation. Why not have Jake Tapper or somebody who at least is known for sometimes asking tough questions of the other side? What's next? An MSNBC town hall with Rachel Maddow? There have been some of those, too, um, back during the campaign. Um, On that note, trying to be fair to everybody here. Appreciate your listening, as always. You know, you can get this on your Amazon device or any other place where you can access podcasts. Uh, There's a lot of people doing podcasts these days. We're trying to carve out our little niche. And we will see you all tomorrow back here whenever you have a time to listen with more buzzing. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.